0: All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fucksters? Uh, what the fuckadelics? What's happening? How are you? So, all right, before I get ahead of myself and start talking about trying to deal with Thanksgiving, today on the show, I've got... Uh, I it's a, it's, a, it's a big show. It's a big show. I've got Casper Collin and Benny Maupin. Uh, they were both uh, Benny Moppins, a uh, a jazz musician who was very tight with Lee Morgan, played with him several different instruments, little sax, a little uh, a little clarinet, big clarinet. Uh, Others, st- we'll talk to him, but uh, and also uh, uh, Casper Collin, who who directed the documentary. Uh, I called him Morgan about Lee Morgan, and then after that, Jimmy Vaughn, Jimmy Vaughn, the blues guitar player. Jimmy Vaughn, Tex Mex, Max, yeah, Jimmy Vaughn, Stevie Ray's brother, also the the guitar player uh, and front man, half front man, used to be him and Kim Wilson for the Fabulous Thunderbirds. He's going to be here. I'm very excited about that. He's a real uh, he's a real musical hero to me. What's going on right now? Is it it's Thanksgiving? I give the same advice every year. I'm not doing anything for Thanksgiving for the second year in a row. I'm not going down to my mommy's house to cook a big dinner this year because I don't have time. I'm in the middle of shooting glow and uh, I'm in the middle of moving. And we're going to go to some you know, Sarah. The painter has some friends. We're going to go over there. And uh, it seems like a, a hippie ordeal, a progressive vegan uh, endeavor. But that's all right. That's all right. It's OK. It's OK. I don't, I no longer have to make exceptions in terms of like, look, I haven't been eating much meat lately, just keep the cholesterol down, keep things level, keep the, you know, the, the levels level in the blood, in the heart, in the fat, in the organs. So I know I could blow it out, blow it out today somewhere. I could, I could just go drop in some friend's house. I know you didn't invite me, but you got to have something to eat, but I'm not going to point is is the holidays a lot of shit's going down. Shit is going down every fucking day. Some of it good, some of it terrible. Some of it good, some of it fucking just heinous. Heinous. Where do you fall? And I'm being vague on purpose. I'm being vague on purpose because one person's heinous is another person's awesome. That's what seems to be the big problem. Your heinous is my awesome. Sorry, sorry. How do we figure out how to talk about that? Here's the deal. I know you're at. Uh, I know you're at family's house, or you got people over. Some annoying guy, some annoying woman, some annoying kid, some annoying cousin, some annoying parent, mommy, daddy. The the, the levels of intensity of annoying, bordering on just uh, you know a, a crime against sanity, is high. It's high today. I know, I know you're going through it. I know you're going, hey, look, and you people that have wonderful families and you're just having a nice time and everybody's sweet and everyone's smiling, maybe holding hands, praying a little bit in different languages. Maybe, you know, grandma still got all her marbles. Grandpa's, you know, passed away, but he was old and everyone's just thrilled. And maybe maybe you're that and your kids are perfect and everything, maybe you're that person or you, and you get along with everybody in your family. Maybe you're that person. I don't know what to say to you. Have a nice day. Enjoy your food. And and congratulations on being mentally and spiritually healthy, you fuckers. That was rude. I apologize. No, I'm sorry. I'm I don't envy you, but but uh, I'm happy for you. So, let me talk to the other people. All right. So, what do I usually do? It's very hot here. I don't know what the temperature is like. Maybe I hopefully the best you can hope for maybe you're already there anywhere east of Los Angeles or California. Yeah, you know, Midwest even. I just hope it's crisp and nice. Maybe even a light snow would be good. But just that crisp, nice fall leaves changing chill in the air that makes you reflect. Makes you reflect on who you are. That's what the Thanksgiving is for. Who are you? Who are you in there? Take that walk. Get out of that room in between yeah, uh, cleaning up and coffee. Get out. Don't help out. Especially if it was a rough dinner. If you had to fucking strap in for some political bullshit or some just emotional onslaught of triggering, you know, if you had to strap in for that, get, get out. You don't have to help clear the table. Fuck it. There's other people. Get out. Take a walk before you fucking hurt somebody with your mouth by saying something horrible. Take that walk in that crisp air. Take it in. Think about it. Think about the crisis at hand. Think about the gratitude at hand. Balance them out. How's the macro? How's the micro? Macro, not great. Micro, could be good. Could be good. What do you got to do? What do you got to do? What's coming up? What are your challenges? Who are you? How can you be better? Do you have apologies to make? Do you have apologies to yourself to make? Do you have things that... You want to go back into that house and set and make some shit right might be a good time to do it or you know what fuck it don't worry about it just bathe in a certain breathe in that fall air breathe it out maybe cry a little bit and just think about who we are who you are who we are what we can do to be better people get a little humility Spread a little love, Making amends, you know, eat some fucking pie. Be nice to the kids. Rambling now, but Jesus, have a good Thanksgiving. Don't make it worse. Don't hurt yourself. Try not to emotionally hurt others. And uh, think about what you need to do next to further your growth as a person and help the bigger picture how does your micro impact the macro the big pick all right so that's all i got but but seriously if the pie is good enjoy it and don't don't eat with a berry pie vanilla ice cream is the way to go all right so, all right. So this is going to be interesting. Um, Casper Collin and Benny Maupin. Uh, Benny is a, is a jazz musician. The documentary that they're, they are both involved with, uh, Casper directed it, I Called Him Morgan, is streaming now on Netflix. If you're a voting member of the Academy, I urge you to check it out. It was just nominated for an NAACP Image Award for Outstanding Documentary, and it blew my mind, and I was just getting into Lee Morgan. It all synced up, and now I get to talk to a guy who knew Lee Morgan, and I'm very excited about that, so... This is me talking to the director Casper Collin and to Lee's friend and musician Benny Maupin. Now, I didn't know you did another documentary before uh, I called him Morgan about uh, Albert Eiler. It's true, very much so. I d- I, but see, like the, the fucked up thing about me and jazz is, I I don't I didn't know who Albert Eiler was. I'm sure you did, Benny, right? Oh yeah, I knew him. Yeah, so there's this whole world of jazz that I, I'm just starting to get into in the last few years, and it seems and it never
1: ending. It is for me too. After like 25 years now, yeah. Uh, and I mean, after making this first film about Albert Isler, it took me seven years. Uh, was a fantastic, to make the film to make the film. It was a fantastic journey. Uh, Why him? Why him? Because the music. Uh, I loved the music so much. Uh, And at that time, I was playing saxophone myself and Albert was something else. But it was also because of Albert's connection to Sweden. And I was living in Stockholm at that time and he kind of lived in, he was from Cleveland, Ohio. Yeah. But then he moved to Sweden in 1962 and stayed there for almost a year. Yeah. And made his first album there. And, you know, but at the same time, he was touring with Swedish dance orchestras in the far north, up to Lapland. Yeah and uh, looked at the midnight sun and everything got like a spiritual awakening uh-huh. uh and then he moved to new york and became this kind of underground hero and uh, young coltrane was very inspired by him and uh, finally asked him to to play at his funeral in 1967 so albert was there with his group and ornette was there with his group so that's kind of who he was very much an underground hero at this time and because 60s. you're from sweden you were you felt connected to it I think that was a, a very important part for me. Yes. Yeah. But I mean, I love music so much. So, uh, and Albert was someone I heard for the first time. I was maybe 18, 19 years old. I think I found the record either in my father's collection or at the, the library in Gothenburg. And it was music that, you know, if you ever heard Albert Heider, it's kind of. Well, now you, I got to go. That's what yeah, I. But, this you, morning I know I got to go listen to it now. <laughs> that's, because when you hear it, it's like, oh, well. I did not know what to do with it. So yeah. it took a lot of years. then I was living in Gotham but when I moved to Stockholm I realized this story with him there and I connected to it. Yeah and then that that film came about.
0: How far back do you go with it? Like where, where 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 was jazz when you started?
2: Well, you know, I'm from Detroit. So I got to grow up listening to gospel music, blues, of course the beginning of Motown. Yeah. Uh all of these things and so many great musicians came to Detroit. During my early years I got to be uh, very close to John Coltrane. I met Sonny Rollins uh, in Detroit. There was Yousef Latif, who was a big influence on me, as well as a lot of the other musicians. You were younger from, than them? From Detroit, yeah, yeah. much younger. Yeah. You know, like uh, Sonny Rollins, he's like 10 years my senior. Right. He's 87 now. And, uh, you know, of course, Coltrane is gone, uh, and Youssef is Latif is gone as well. But uh I got to hear all of these different things. And little by little, that music that was coming from New York, basically, was sort of getting its way into radio yeah. in Detroit. But they would always apologize before they would play some of it. You know, at that time, I didn't have any records. And so the radio was like my saving grace. And, you know, 12 noon, there was a guy who came on. And... Uh, he was the one who introduced the music, but he would always say, "Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to present something to you now. It's a little bit different. So don't change the station. But this is a young man who's creating quite a stir in the New York music scene. Wow! And he's he's doing something that's quite different. So yeah. uh, just uh, just sit back and just listen to it. You yeah. know And then I started to hear Ornette's music, and it was like wow, because you know in my ears. I grew up with the blues and the gospel, and and of course the bebop, Detroit was very much a bebop city, heavily influenced by Charlie Parker and all the great musicians from that era. Were you playing at this point? I was beginning to play, yeah. I was beginning to play, I I was like, uh, I was about 14 or 15. What
0: what was your first instrument?
2: My first instrument was actually the piano. Mm -hmm. And then from there I went to the clarinet, but i really wanted to play the saxophone so just before i got to go from middle school to like high school i was able to get my first saxophone and that's when i really i was able to dig in thanks to my band director at the high school and that was a tenor Tenor? no No. it was alto oh yeah but ornette he's the one who captured me right it was it was a completely different approach Uh, there was no piano, first of all. There was the absence of the piano uh-huh. that opened up the aura of the music. I guess that's the only way I could describe it. Uh-huh. And since there was no chordal thing going on harmonically, it was just the rhythm with Billy Higgins or Eddie Blackwell or whoever was playing, and Don Cherry. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that was like, wow. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was like in the Charlie Hayden and they were playing some things, but it was so unified. That is what really enabled me to understand this is well thought out. Right. So you have something that sounds like, you know, from the
0: future, yes. but the context is solid, it's grounded.
2: Yes. I had a conversation once when I was about 18 or 19 with John Coltrane, and he didn't talk about his music at all. But he was very excited about something. He said, There's a young man in New York right now who's creating quite an uproar. He's, he's, <laughs> I went to hear him the week before I came here to Detroit, and uh, he was playing at a place called the Jazz Gallery, which uh-huh. was a place that was known for presenting things that were really cutting edge yeah. things. And his name is Ornette Coleman. Oh, wow. And so I said, You know, I've been hearing him a little bit on the radio. He says, Yeah. And it was Coltrane who planted the seed <laughs> yeah. in my mind. He right. said, you need to come to New York because there's some young musicians in New York. They're a little bit older than you, some of them a little bit younger. He says, but the music is moving forward. And he said, and that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in in being able to capture some of that spirit in my music. Yeah. And so that's- that That's what got of, you there? That's what got you to New York? He was the first one. He encouraged me. He said right away, straight out. He said, even if you don't stay in New York, come and feel and, it and just feel it and listen to what's being done yeah
0: yeah and and coltrane himself was to be you know he was certainly pushing the envelope yes towards he the end so he he, was. he sort of was pushing out into what ornette took up right that's right that's yeah
2: right. he was very influenced by ornette yeah but that there were a lot ours. of musicians yeah. who were influenced by ornette but i think they kept it Kind of on the down low, mm-hmm. they because because I mean, if you were a bebopter, a bebopper, then if you were listening to Ornette, then you were like, you know, well, what's wrong with you? You know, why are you listening to that? Yeah, you know, what is that? There was because it was the it was the 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 changing of the guards, so yeah. to speak. So some of the older guys who had worked so hard to develop that approach that was popularized by Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie and sure. all those musicians. They didn't they, want to go out there. They did not want to go out there. They had no intentions of going out yep. there. And so there was a lot of bad, bad, bad conversations mm-hmm. about Ornette destroying the music. And Isn't that interesting? you know, he's, he's taking away from the art form that's been so sacred and so special.
0: Conservative hipsters. Exactly, <laughs> Conser-
2: beyond conservative. American music is the only music that continues to unfold. Yeah. And, and jazz around the world is warmly embraced, not only by musicians, but listeners and people who, who look to America for something different, something fresh, something adventurous. That takes a lot of
0: courage. Right, and it's it's more appreciated it seems
2: outside of America. You are absolutely right about that. I can't deny it.
0: You know, like in Sweden, you know, this kid, he he <laughs> he, he gets hip to Albert when he's like 14 <laughs> and it changes his life and they make a movie about him. Right?
1: That that's how it is. That's how it is. But I, but I think you really I mean that was the film about Albert was partly about that that, that they could no, not get any gigs really in, in new york i mean cecil had to play for the door but then they went mm. to sweden and they were booked for two weeks you know yeah prepaid <laughs> so it was a big big thing yeah uh so so that's part of this film how the appreciation was bigger in europe and in scandinavia for this mm. music
0: now mm. lee morgan you got me at an interesting time with lee morgan because i had the experience with lee morgan that you had with with albert my guy down at the record store he gave me a I think the first one he gave me, I think the first one I had was uh, Six Sense. Is that the Lee Morgan album? Yeah. I, I didn't register it. And then I got Gigolo, and mm-hmm. I put it on, and I'm just walking around the house, and I'm hearing this tone, and I'm like, what is that? Like, it just mm-hmm. went in. Like, I didn't register Sixth Sense. I didn't know really who Lee Morgan was. I was just buying records. But the tone on Gigolo just kind of blew my mind, and I felt something. Yep. And then I locked into Lee Morgan stuff. And I was sort of like, does everybody know about this guy? <laughs> like, I, like there was part of me that's sort of like, I think he's better than Miles. <laughs> like exactly, there's... exactly. And then but, when your, your movie came out, I'm like, I had no idea about that story. about. And I'm sure yeah. everyone in the jazz world knows that his, his wife or his common law wife shot him in the club. I guess the story was that he was in the middle of a set, originally was the story. But then you somehow track down like the, the coincidence... Of that guy, what's his name? Larry. Larry uh, Ridley. Yeah.
1: Who you L- know? Who, no, Larry Renny Thomas with a cassette. L- yeah. Larry Rennie Thomas, mm-hmm. who ran into her, yeah.
0: Helen yeah. Morgan, yeah. who was just
1: working at a church, correct, or
0: working for the school. What was it? She,
1: she was actually taking an evening course. She had no education, you know. So she she came to his evening course in history. He was a history teacher uh-huh. and just radio DJ. This was in the late eighties, <laughs> right? And yeah, and they connected. Finds, and yeah. then
0: he finds that, figures out who she is, yeah. and he's like, holy shit. And then you has got this weird cassette recording interview with her. Mm. And you fill in all these gaps. And then yeah. you got all these guys who were able to fill in the gaps in the film, too. Now, you didn't hook up with Lee until like later in his career, right?
2: Oh, yeah. Actually, it was 1968. But prior to that, yeah. during my teenage years, when Lee was actually playing with Art Blakey and the Jazz, jazz Messengers, yeah, I got to hear him I think the first time I heard him was maybe nineteen, nineteen fifty eight, nineteen fifty nine. Uh-huh. Because they came to Detroit. They, yeah, they would come usually maybe twice a year. Yeah, and it just happened that even though I was under twenty one, yeah, so there was a the law if you weren't twenty one you couldn't come in. Yeah, the guys would even just let me in. It said you have to sit somewhere special because they knew you were a player. Well, they knew that I wanted the music and I didn't come in there to drink any alcohol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't want a beer or anything. Yeah. I mean you know so. But Morgan was always a part of my 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 musical infancy. I say, yeah, yeah. you know, he came with Art Blakey, and that music just captured me with Benny Golson and all those. guys. Well, that hard bop stuff was it was accessible. You that, know, it that's was, true.
0: It wasn't like you know straight up bebop, and it had a pretty strict blues groove.
2: Yeah, yeah. you could yeah.
0: lock right into it. Yeah. and swing a little, and mm-hmm. maybe
2: even snap. You know, you're not, not going to get confused. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it was the beginning of a of a shift. Yeah. From the from the from the Bebop its right. itself as a as a pure form right of the music, yeah. you know. And uh with composers like Benny Golson and Bobby Timmons, I mean they created these things that were related basically to the to the black church again. Yeah. You know, this here and that there yeah, yeah. and uh <laughs> yeah. those tunes. Right. I mean, you know, and uh it just kind of went on from there, you know, yeah. but I mean, those were things that the general public could have access to. Right. Exactly. There, there was a it, there, it seemed like there was an innate marketing strategy. Well, there was an innate marketing strategy and there was also some tremendous foundational stuff going on with our Blakey as the drummer. Mm.
0: Right. Oh, yeah. He
2: yeah. knew how to form it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And he had the guys who could carry it over. Yeah. So Morgan was there. He was in my head. But then, you know, fast forward. Uh, When I moved to New York, which was 1962, yeah, uh, I never saw Lee Morgan. Who were you seeing? I saw Freddie Hubbard. I heard, uh, of course, I heard Dizzy. Yeah. uh, Kenny Dorham. What year is this that you go, 66? No, this is like... Shortly after I got there, these guys were active. Like what year were you there? 63? I came and I moved there mm-hmm. when I was twenty-one in yeah. nineteen sixty-two. Okay, so right, So I yeah. celebrated my twenty-second right. birthday right in New York. You know. So the scene was everyone was on the scene. Everybody was happening. I never saw Miles because that was another realm. But it uh, was what realm? Well, was that? I mean, you know, he wasn't like uh, he wasn't accessible.
0: Yeah, you right, know? right. He he's, wasn't he's out in the kept, clubs.
2: No. these these guys that i mean he might later i discovered he would go to the club to hear what they were doing but his thing was on a completely different level sure just artistically yeah and where he was you know as a band leader yeah the the whole strata of the Uh thing Uh you know Uh the mystique yeah the miles yeah exactly the (laughs) prince of darkness that's what they used to call him in new york but uh, you know i got to hear these guys but i never saw lee because that was when he was down for the count. Well, that's when he was busy strung out. Yeah, he was very much addicted. I discovered, you know, actually I knew he was I knew he was uh, addicted mm. the last couple of times I saw him in Detroit because I could just tell. I mean, Detroit musicians were heavily influenced by Charlie Parker, so many of them were addicted. So, yeah. you know, if when you're around people who are addicted, and you and you look yeah. at them enough, you can tell physically. Oh yeah, they're what droopy. Whether they're, oh, they're droopy, <laughs> they're scratching, and they're, you know their uh, whole being uh, is you know, droopy. And yeah, yeah. that whole yeah. thing that goes with that yeah. n- nasty yeah. habit. And so, uh, fast forward. You know, I'm in New York working, doing my private lessons, playing with the Puerto Rican cats, just getting all of the exposure that I could possibly get, hanging out with Marion Brown and Wayne Shorter's brother, Alan Shorter, who was a great composer and Mm -hmm. trumpet player. Now, when do you
0: start playing all the instruments? Like you play the flute,
2: piccolo, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Bass, clarinet. Well, uh, basically, when I got to New York, I was playing the tenor. Yeah. And uh, I had the flute. Yeah. And then uh, a little bit later on, Uh, A musician who was known as an avant-garde musician. His name was Marzette Watts. Yeah, he was one of the one of the. He's going deep now. Yes, you know, (laughs) really deep now. The ESP ESP (laughs) guys. (laughs) But Marzette was like. uh, He was a painter, yeah, in, w- heavily influenced by Jackson Pollock, right. So you know, people in New York say, "Oh God, he's out of his mind," but he was also working to, to play the, the saxophone and, and the bass clarinet, yeah. And one day he called me up. He says, "Man, I know you play different instruments." He says, "But uh, I was just in Paris doing a show because he was showing." Yeah. He, this cat was actually going, he was making more money doing his paintings than he was as a musician because yeah, yeah. as a musician, <laughs> he is too lame. I can't hire him for anything. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he doesn't read music. He doesn't know any standards. I mean, you know, he's better off just, you know, let freedom ring. That right. Yeah, yeah. So he called me and he says, I got this bass clarinet. I just purchased a new one and I want to sell my old one. And he says, Why don't you come over and take a look at it? And uh, if you if you like it, then, you know, you will just strike a deal. <laughs> yeah. So I said, okay. <laughs> so I went over to his house, and uh, he showed me the bass clarinet. Yeah. And I looked at it. I picked it up, and I kind of felt it. I'd never held one in my hands. He says, yeah, it's a, it's a decent instrument, you know. I said, well, how much do you want for it? And he said, give me $50 for it. <laughs> yeah. So I said, okay, can I give you 20 now, and I'll come back you uh-huh. know, when I get some uh-huh. more bread, he says, yeah. Yeah, just take it, Just pay me when you, when you get straight. You know. <laughs> so now you got a whole new thing. I got a whole new voice, all <laughs> together, man. And I kept it in my apartment. Like I did not stuff, yeah. bring it out in public at all. No, why? No. Well, I was first. Wasn't it, it was. It was humbling. Yeah. You know, and I couldn't really get the sound. Oh I mean, yeah. And I, mm. you know, it was. It was just the the nature of it. First of all, it's made out of wood. Yeah. And uh, you know, I had to get, uh, had to develop my my amateur and my ear for listening to it. Of course, I had already heard Eric, yeah, which was it, a yeah. motivating factor. Eric Dolphy. That you know, I said, wow, if I could play even one iota as well that as was either. his instrument. It, well, that was one of them. <laughs> But he played the flute, the alto, <laughs> yeah, and he played regular clarinet, yeah, and he played the bass clarinet. I mean, in my mind, he's the one, right, who set the tone for me, right. But later, like I say, you know, I just kind of developed myself. I yeah. got to, I got I to be, it out. be around New York with the yeah. guys; they were hiring, me and, mm-hmm. you know, kind of take me through some of the gigs and everything. And then I got a I got a good gig, which is the first real important international gig, yeah, and that was with the great composer and pianist Horace Silva. Horace Silver, Horace, yeah, yeah. I auditioned yeah. for his band one time, and uh, he turned me down. He says, "No, I don't think uh, you know. I got somebody else in mind." And then uh, I'm in the rehearsal. Finally, he did hire yeah. me after a second audition. Yeah, yeah. And by then, I had played <laughs> with McCoy. I had played with a bunch of people, mm-hmm. and I didn't give a damn if he hired me or not. But I wanted the gig because I knew that it was going to work. Because Horace worked. He had bands that actually made trips and went to Europe. And it's exciting. I was in rehearsal with him for our first tour. It's 1968. Yeah. And the door opens and it's Lee Morgan. Okay. And he looked great. He got all cleaned up. He was sharp as could be. I mean, he was dressed well and the skin looked good. I mean, you know, he, he was definitely not high. And, uh, you know, he came right over to me. He says, Horace, I'm sorry to interrupt your, your rehearsal, man, but I got to see for a second if I can talk to your saxophone player. And he came over to me and he said, hey, man, I'm getting ready to do another recording with Blue Note. Will you do it with me? I said, yeah. <laughs> he said, okay, I have somebody from Luno call you. He said, that's it. And he was gone. Yeah. That took every bit of about three or four minutes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, the first recording I did with him was called "Karamba." Mm. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that was my first one. And what was he like? He was really during the time that we came together. Yeah. because he was clean. Yeah. there was no there was no private side. You know what I mean? Right. He wasn't always no secrets. No, he wasn't trying to go off somewhere so he could come back all lit up. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. And so we focused on the music. That was right. that was our thing. And as a result of other recordings we did, we did uh, tender moments with McCoy Tyner, and we did one with uh, Lonnie uh, Smith. You and Lee. Well, it wasn't just us; it was Julian Priester and a bunch of other musicians, and we did these things. You know, we just we just got tight. We loved the way we played together. The sound was great. Mm. Yeah, Caramba was the was the turning point. And then uh, finally, after my stay with Horace Silver, which was about two years, yeah, uh, I came back to New York and I called Lee. I said, Hey, Lee. Uh, I'm home man and uh, I'm done Horace just fired everybody because yeah. that's what he would do he'd keep you a couple of years yeah. and then he'd say okay now you go out and do do your thing yeah you know and so he said well that's that's really cool he says uh Uh, George Coleman, great saxophonist. Uh He says, George has been playing with me, but George is starting to get more of his own work and he wants to have his own band and I need a tenor player. He said, will you come and work with me? I said, hell yeah. You're back? I'm back. (laughs) 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 So I just went like from being unemployed for maybe two weeks. Well, how'd you meet Herbie Hancock? I met Herbie Hancock before all of this happened.
0: Yeah, because you did a lot of records with him.
2: Well, yes, I did. Yeah. And uh, I met Herbie Hancock through my through my chief mentor, is Sonny Rollins. Uh-huh.
0: Uh-huh. You
2: know, once I got to New York, I called Sonny because I met Sonny in Detroit when I was like 17. And, yeah, yeah. And to this day, he's my man. Yeah. I call him at least once a week. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Sonny. How's he doing? He's doing good. Good. Yeah, he's in great shape. Man. Good, and, good. And just, you know, tremendous spirit. You know, I went to see him at the beginning of September and spent three days at his house. And we just oh, hung sweet. out and talked. Yeah. And, Gave him a full report on what I'm doing, you know, and where I'm going and, Uh you know, what's happening. And he encouraged me, he always has, you know. That's sweet. That was the beginning of a, a completely different cycle. You know, but the 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 beauty of it was that during that period where I was like working during the day and everything, I called Sonny. And Sonny's going to play at a place called the Half Note. Yeah, a really famous place where Coltrane plays all those incredible solos, and everybody played the Half Note. Mm-hmm. It was like when Train wanted to play somewhere for four or five weeks. Yeah, he could play in the Half Note. Yeah, and nobody else could get a gig. They could yeah. just forget about it. <laughs> yeah, he "No, I'm sorry, Train is here for the next month. You just have to come back later." <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it was the same with Sonny. Yeah, and so one night. Sonny says, well, meet me when you come, and uh, you can go in the club with me. And so I said, okay. So I'm standing outside. It's wintertime. I'm all bundled up and everything. And uh, I look one way, and I see Sonny walking towards me, and I look down the street, and there's Herbie walking towards me. Because I had seen him with Miles, but yeah. I didn't know him. Yeah, yeah. But we all kind of met like that. Right. And Sonny looked at Herbie, and he says, Herbie. Do you know Benny? <laughs> <laughs> that was it. That was it. That was yeah, it.
0: So what made you
2: make this Lee Morgan
1: movie and how did you reach out to all of these guys? That's a very good question. Because when you said before how you found Lee, yeah, I found it's a little bit similar to me, I think. Even yeah. if I've been around listening to Yes for a long time, yeah. I made this film about Albert. It took me seven years. After that, being a filmmaker, I said to myself, I will not spend another f- seven years making a documentary about a, a dead jazz musician because Albert <laughs> it, died in 1970 it, it, yeah. it's, it's quite a challenge to do yeah. those films find, right. find the people, find the material find the money and you would try to create the film because there's not too much material left you know Yeah, yeah. Uh, And but then being very music interested it was I think 8 years ago now I was just watching YouTube I like to do it sometimes see if there's something I haven't seen or heard yeah. and then it was Lee Morgan playing with breaking the Jazz Messengers uh, it was from 1961 in Tokyo It was Lee's solo. Uh, Lee's solo there in that live recording. I never heard anyone play trumpet like that before. So it is like that when I find something, I kind of listen to it on repeat for a week. or So it just goes on and on. And I was still reluctant to do another jazz film, but it grew on me. And this Lee Morgan is kind of a special guy, I realized. And uh, I found another great music like Search for the New Land and uh, the music that you did together, Live at the Lighthouse... It was, was new to me. I I had listened a lot to jazz, but I missed Lee somewhere in there. Yeah. Uh, but then I w- said to myself, maybe there's a film there. We're going to see you do this initial research. How many people is still around? Right. Is there an archival footage? Uh, can we do something? And then I realized quite a few people were still around, like Benny, like some yeah. other people. And I remember in the beginning, I, I just called around and I had a few meetings with them started to, to, to listen to them. Because at this time, I only know about the very basics about Lee, like the Wikipedia no, knowledge, which yeah, sure. was like, he was this, you know, uh, young guy uh, that that was recorded with everyone at 18 years old, you know, and just a teenager. <laughs> yeah. And and he was with Art, Art Blakey, he was with Dizzy, he was recorded, I mean, he was signed with Blue Note when he was 18. What did you do when you were 18? I mean... <laughs> not much. Not much. I mean, that's quite remarkable. And, you know, he did all those records for, for Blue Notes. I know that. And then I know that he was shot by a woman at the club uh, in the early 70s when he was in the young 30s. I didn't know anything about this woman. Uh, and I, it didn't seem many people know anything about her either. I realized when I read that and also when I saw those YouTube clips, because you can see the comments under... Yeah. Uh, and a lot of the die-hard Lee Morgan fans said, he's so great, why is he gone? Oh, that that, that bitch that, that shot him, She should yeah. burn in hell forever. It was a lot of those right. very mm-hmm. this, you know, the, a- angry the, anger, a lot of anger. Of course, I mean- Anger on the internet comments, yeah. Pretty, very common.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it is, it is. but <laughs> I mean, I,
1: I can see those guys. I yeah. mean, she, this woman took their right. idol, idol away. Right. Uh, but I mean, talking with those guys that I found that were still alive, quite a few of them started to talk about the last four years in Lee's life mm. right? Uh, that he has spent with a woman named Helen uh, and they talked about her like you did in a very lovely and passionate way so and, you knew her Benny
2: oh yeah most definitely we spent a lot of time together it
0: seemed like everybody sort of knew her in the scene
2: oh would. Yeah. I, I, I spent hours at their home up in the Bronx. Yeah. Uh she was always at the gigs. She was always handling the receipts and making sure that the money was right at the yeah. end of the night. So he didn't have to be preoccupied with any of that. He was just playing his music and yeah. you know, coming back yeah. from being, you know, addicted. She yeah. helped him, you know, of course, you know, fight through the yeah. the, the sweating the, the and the horrible and yeah. Yeah, you know, got him on a methadon and everything. So I got to I got to see him at that time, yeah, you know, when he was really fighting to, to, to re emerge, yeah, to reinvent himself.
0: And, and, and you recorded with him like on the Live at the Lighthouse. That's like, that's right, we I came mean, here at Homosa
2: Beach. That's a big
0: album, man.
2: Yeah, well, we came, and you know, uh, when I started playing with him, he wasn't writing a lot, so I came to a rehearsal one day and he, uh, he said, hey, man, you got any tunes? So I said, yeah, I got yeah. one. I got one I brought it with me, you know? Yeah. And we played it, and he, he messed around with it. He says, ooh, I like this. <laughs> Have you got any more? <laughs> I said, yeah. So pretty soon, yeah. there was five tunes, and they all on live at the lighthouse. Yeah, nice. He gave me all of it. He said, hey, man, these are your tunes. Publish them. Do whatever the hell you want to do with them. You know, he says, I love playing them. And he and he used those tunes my tunes and the Harold Mayburn's tunes yeah. and Jamie Merritt's tunes. Yeah. Everybody wrote tunes. The only one who didn't write a tune was Mickey Rocca. Uh-huh. the drummer. But Mickey added a flavor to the tunes with his with his drumming and his special touch that the tunes never would have had had it not been for Mickey Rocca. right? The drummer. He was fantastic. Yeah. So in a sense, you know, his his work was a part of those compositions sure. that made them come to life right. when he played there. The backbone. Yeah, it was
0: really a tremendous. So, thing. so you, so he's like, you know, he's he's coming back. He's doing good. Yeah. Lee Morgan's kicking ass. He's, man, he's kicking some serious ass. He was. And Helen
2: seemed okay. Everything seemed okay to you. Hey, man, look, we had a lovely time. We spent two weeks in San Francisco playing at a place called The Both And mm-hmm. and during that time we recorded for the radio which ended up being a bootleg oh yeah It's out there somewhere I never made a dime from that because uh-huh. somebody took the masters nobody knew where the masters you seen went. the record though oh yeah yeah. <laughs> we finally saw it Yeah. you know they put somebody else's name on it it wasn't my name it was Billy Harper's name uh-huh. but you know I said hey look so be it I mean you know right. that's just the way stuff goes you know but we had a fantastic time here in California because San Francisco was so great and we're playing like six nights a week and you know having great times to just travel around the city is helen yeah. traveling
1: with you guys yeah
2: yeah so yeah. everybody was one happy family yeah man we came here we went out to the lighthouse out of the ocean beautiful but so, that yeah. was really really the feeling i had
1: when looking into this talking yeah. to those guys it was like one big family and yeah. helen was a part of it and then i realized okay this is the same woman that's actually shot Lee morgan uh and it was like I was in the middle of a Greek tragedy or something, or a Shakespearean drama. Mm, yeah. That was the feeling I had uh, mm. in the early. And then I found this cassette we were talking about. How a the and Thomas. did you find that? <laughs> you know, this was in, in the internet era, era you know. Still. Oh, so, so you knew it was out there? <laughs> no, but but I mean... I did this initial research and I found on internet because I didn't know much about Helen. I, yeah. I saw this guy. He had a blog, Miranda Thomas, and you could read parts of that interview he made with her. Yeah. So I realized, okay, she lived until 1996. Okay, and he made an interview. It's interesting. I want to hear it. So I got in contact with him and he sent me not the cassette, but a CD <laughs> of it. And I remember listening to it the first time was that, wow, it wasn't just the story she, she's telling because she's telling about her life, you know, getting her first son when she's 13, yeah. the other when she's 14, yeah. leaving them behind because she was looking for another life. This was outside the Wilmington in North Carolina and then yeah. went on and, and in, into New York. yeah, uh, and, and created a new life, met Lee, became his manager, wife, everything. But also took care of a lot of the guys. Yeah. Everyone was hanging out. She's making food. <laughs> you know, it was she, like the den mother. Yeah. She was. She was yeah. in a way. Uh but that that was the feeling I, I had really that this camaraderie that she was part of. And at this tragic night when she shot him, because everyone was hating Helen, of course, and has been, that wasn't part of this family that you were. And uh, they didn't know. They didn't know what she had done to him, that she actually helped him through those hard years. And they didn't know that story. So I thought that that was she should be remembered also for that part. I mean, it's sympathetic course, character. Yeah, but it's wrong to kill someone. Of course, right. we all think so. But she, people should know her not only as the murderer, also as part and, of this and, family, and also know you know what went
2: down. Yeah. yeah. See, there were a lot of things that happened. Yeah, that Lee shared with me personally because he and I were very very close. Uh-huh. And he told me one time. He said, "You know." Helen comes from a background where she's been severely abused by a man that she was close to. And Lee sort of described it as he was the kind of guy coming from work and, you know, she was there, everything would be beautiful because yeah. she was a very great cook and a yeah. great homemaker, and the guy would just start beating her. Right. So, you know, the that kind of suffering and that kind of struggle, that is not something that's easily forgotten. I mean... You can you can go on from away from that and a lot of women don't. They stay for whatever reason. And uh, she did. Yeah. That's why when she moved away from where she had been living, she left all of that behind. Ran away. But you can't you can't run from the pain yeah. and the scars that an abusive relationship leaves. Right. And the film helped me to to, to sort of deal with my own closure. About everything. Oh, yeah, because, how so? Well, you know, because we were so close. Yeah. You know, I just felt like, wow, you know, something went terribly wrong there. You know, because when I left, everything was kind of shifting a little bit. And, and Lee was going through some real transformative Where stuff. Where were you going? Where'd you go? Well, I I left him after a couple of years and we had done all this stuff because I got a call from Herbie. Okay, right. And so I said, Lee, I want to take this skate with Herbie. And he kind of paused. We were talking on the phone and he said, man, do it. Yeah. It's going to be good for you. Yeah. You know, and uh, that's how much he loved me. You know, and whenever I would go back to New York, I mean, he was the first person I called. Yeah. So, you know, this last conversation we had, it was about what he was going through and he and he told me uh how he was withdrawing from the methadone yeah and he told me how he felt he says i feel bad i feel really bad he says i ache all over my body yeah he said because anything that's strong enough to counteract the withdrawal symptoms of heroin has got to be stronger than the heroin right he says i've given up one habit for another sure he said but i'm backing off from it i'm backing off from it man he says and uh I'm not feeling good. I'm not feeling good. You know, he's telling me how he was feeling. You know, we never talked about feelings. Right. That was never it. Mm -hmm. You know, but he was. He had to. He had to unload because emotionally he was going through these changes. And then he told me about this woman that he had met and he had spent the night at her house, which was kind of like that was never an issue. After our gigs, he went home with Helen. Mm. That was always it. Yeah. That was it. That was the end of the night. Receipts. BAP the right. is over. Right. Everybody got paid. Sure. And everybody went their own separate ways. Yeah. Okay. So he said, uh, I spent the night out and Helen's calling around. She didn't know what to think. You know, where is he? Is he hurt? Have she called the hospitals, calling the police and everything? And then so finally, uh, when he did get back home, uh, she realized that there was the there was a vibe, you know. But by then I, I wasn't there physically anymore. Yeah, fortunately for me, you weren't there. No, I wasn't there. But when I saw Casper's film, yeah, and I heard the comments from the other guys, yeah, I started thinking about the conversations that that we had had, right, and how he he pushed her very aggressively to the point that she ended up being out on the street with no coat and There's none snow. of that. Yeah, and I and I then I started thinking, you know, I said that kind of violence triggered something that was deeply buried in her life oh yeah she had no she was temporarily insane as far as i'm concerned. sure and he he was her whole life he was he was and 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 the way she responded it was just like for whatever reason she bought the gun i mean that was the comic thing you know he bought the gun for her yeah i saw the gun yeah. i held the gun in my hand yeah One time I went to dinner and Lee says, hey man, come here, I want to show you something. Takes me in their bedroom, which is lovely. I mean, the whole apartment was fantastic. And then he opens up his drawer and he pulls out this pearl handle revolver. It's beautiful. He yeah. says, yeah. He says, I, I got this. I said, man, what are you going to do with this? Right. And he says, well, you know, somebody might s- try to stiff me for my bread, man. I might have to run up on somebody I uh-huh. saw, oh, man, you're not going to use that, man. And he said, you want to get one? I said, no, I don't want anything to do with that. I handed it back to him. He folded it up in the cloth and he put it back in the drawer. Uh-huh. But that weapon had been in my hand. Oh, yeah. You know, and I said, it's a, it's a great weapon. My father used to have weapons, so yeah. I knew about weapons already. Sure. But, uh, you know, that, that whole exchange. So when I saw the film, I, I started thinking and I started thinking. And I said, you know, from her abusive past, something snapped. Yeah, well, she thought that, you know, he was with another woman. But not only that. It was the aggressiveness of him pushing her out into the street. From the club. From the club. That that violent act. Yeah, and he had snow. There was a
1: snowstorm
0: going on. Yeah,
2: and they could, oh, that was
0: With his
1: hands,
2: I said, okay, that was the trigger.
0: Right, but she had the gun. She had the gun. She went
2: down there with the gun. She went down there with the gun. To make a statement of some kind. I don't know if that was what her intentions were, and we'll never know. That's right. But she did have the weapon. And uh I think I she th- wanted to confront him. Well, of course she wanted to confront him. You know, right. because he wasn't coming forth and telling her very much. Yeah. And everything was all kinda up in the air and everything, you know, but I felt that at the moment she killed him, she killed herself. Yeah. She killed herself. That's what happened there. And, you know, and I said, you know, this is really clear to me from seeing the film. I was I've seen the film now three times. Yeah. And I said, Oh, I got it now. I see yeah. what happened. Temporarily, she was insane. Yeah, she never would have done that. Yeah, but you know when you carry something, and someone's violent towards you, I, and he, and she was hurt,
0: and she, she felt deeply hurt, betrayed. You know, like you all made, of that because you know all
2: the guys knew. Right. You well, know what? I mean, you know, they were in the band so yeah, I don't right. know how public it was right. with them, but he shared with me right. that he met somebody and he said, "You know, Helen is older than I am." Sure. Right. And I've got a vibe with this woman. Yeah. And uh, you know, I I didn't mean to hurt her." He says, "But, you know, at the end of the night, the vibe was such I just wanted to go and be with her yeah he couldn't get out though she wasn't gonna let him go well you know he didn't he didn't come home and then when he did I don't know what their exchange was but I'm quite sure it wasn't lovely you know because it was it was painful so did you see Helen after all this went down you know after I left I never saw her again until I saw the film no kidding and that wasn't her that was just her voice
0: what happened to her what kind of time did she do how did she end up
1: out yeah, this is like a film in itself almost. We could make another film. It <laughs> could continue and continue. But we had to make a lot of decisions when we made it, I mean because, yeah it looks like pretty short time. She was in there five years uh-huh. uh, and then it was, uh, did you say parole? What do you say yeah. in English? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she w- she was out in New York for a while and then she moved back with the help of her son down to North Carolina and started on again and again built another life for her but from a filmmaking perspective i mean the big challenge in this film was you know with lee we had the fantastic music all the blue note photographs almost 2000 black and white fantastic photographs to mm-hmm. choose from he is one of the most well documented musicians ever from this era playing uh-huh. jazz pr- from blown out there uh, he liked to dress up that he liked to dress up and then we had all the footage the, um, when he was playing yeah. but, but with Helen she did not like to be photographed we had maybe 9 or 10 still photographs of her <laughs> right. but then we had her voice so how, how are we going to solve this I mean balance those 2 lives up in the yeah. film that was the biggest challenge so mm-hmm. I think that was what I was trying to say before when I first heard her voice it wasn't just only the story she was telling that is magnificent it's the sound of her voice too so I think when we were making this film and editing it we were feeling kind of almost like musicality in her voice I really loved listening to that voice and working with that cassette recording like like a like a music piece in a way so I think the nicest comment I ever had on this film was when it was shown it was premiered in Venice, and then I went to Telluride Film Festival, and there, the opera director, Peter Sellers were. he was there. And the, he opera really loved the guy from the opera? Yeah, yeah, and he really loved the film, and he hugged me and said, hey, man, <laughs> what have you <laughs> done? This is fantastic. And, and and I will never forget it, because you've you, you done the do-it, the do-it between Hill, Helen and Lee, you know, <laughs> between his trumpet and her voice. And I said, "Oh wow, that, that, that was deep to me, because that was really what we felt when we edited this film, and yeah. we was trying to treat her... I mean, that's her story with with what she's saying, but it's also like music. Oh, yeah. So So you made a little jazz yourself.
2: (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Good job. With very few elements. (laughs) I thank Casper for making the film because, you know, I was with Herbie. All this stuff happened. I was stunned. Yeah. And I couldn't come back to New York. Yeah. I didn't go to the funeral because I couldn't. Yeah, Herbie booked all these gigs, and uh, you know, I was just, I was just fucked up behind it. Yeah, I stayed high a lot. That's for sure. I saw my friends had some good weed and the great cocaine and shit. Yeah, and I, I got, I was getting higher than a motherfucker. As they say. Yeah, you know. But then it got to a point where it started to be abusive, and I've always been able to say, okay, that's yeah. the end of that. Yeah. You know, but it it just hurt me, man. And when I came back to New York, there was an emptiness that I felt, you know. Yeah. Well, I can't call him. Yeah. I can't call him. Or her. Or her. I was never angry with her. Yeah. I wasn't. I was hurt, but I wasn't angry because I loved her, too. Yeah, Yeah. It's like losing two good friends. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I never saw her again. Yeah. Until I saw her in the film, yeah, you know, and then it just brought back all these moments that we shared, you know, the you dinners. still got those, yeah, the dinners that we had, and and uh, she's, you know, because I would go up there, and and Lee would say, "Oh man, let's have dinner and let's let's go get some blow and just go out and hear everybody," <laughs> and that's what we would do. We might go to three
0: or four clubs in one night. I, I'll tell you the. It was a a tragic movie but the feeling at the end was not sad. Right. right that's right. That's not
2: easy. That's to right. Do. That's mean, not easy to do. Yeah, you have to you have to get your head really straight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you thought about this for 7 years. <laughs> you know, I just got to live with this, you yeah, know. I would
1: say that the the editing we we edited this film over a 3-year period and uh so that was very important to really have that time and I worked with excellent editors when when making this film. So but it was very important really to coming in from the music side with lee and also ending with the music in this film uh, and to have that music feeling all through the film so uh, yeah it was a lot of struggle to get it together because i mean basically it's it's a fantastic story but you also w- will have that music as part of it all the way and yeah. uh, so the idea was really to make this film to be experienced in a cinema with the right sound quite loud to really hear the the beauty and the power in this music, I mean.
0: Yep. Well, well, thanks for doing it, man. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And thanks for talking, guys. Hey, thank you. Okay, as I mentioned, I called him Morgan is in contention for a Best Documentary feature nomination. So if you're a member of the Academy and you haven't seen it, please check it out. Speaking about documentaries, I'd also like you to check out another doc that's in contention. It's called Sidemen Long Road to Glory about the lives of some legendary bluesmen. I did the narration for it and I hope you're considering voting for it as well. Okay? Dig it. So, Jimmy Vaughn. Z- Jimmy Vaughn, what can I say about Jimmy Vaughn? I was thrilled to meet the guy. When I was in high school, later in high school, I don't know where I got him Uh, The first two Fabulous Thunderbirds records. The uh, Girls Go Wild and What's the Word? Those two records. I didn't know who they were. I'm not sure where I got the records. I tend to think that I got them from a box of records from the record store next door, the RB record store next door to where I worked in uh, high school, and they didn't want them anymore. But it was just like the greatest, most fun, you know, just kind of swing groove Texas blues music that I'd ever reckoned with. And I just I just loved it. And I loved the cover. It was just this goofy-ass cover. Keith Ferguson, Jimmy Vaughn, Kim Wilson, Mike Buck. And then I saw a sign somewhere in Albuquerque that the Fabulous Thunderbirds are going to be playing the Golden Inn out on Highway 14 in Albuquerque. I'll tell Jimmy about this. So, like, at that time, I was very into buying uh, vintage uh, clothing. I had a couple of... Uh, I had a sharkskin jacket that I was sort of obsessed with, and then there was a couple of shiny suits. I had a gold suit and a silver suit that were shiny. It wasn't quite sharkskin, but it was shiny. I don't know what the material was, but shiny. And I got my skinny ties, and you know I combed my hair up. I did a little of that, you know. I've been, I've been, I've been out there in the desert, fashion-wise, for forty years. Forty years lost in the desert. I finally figured it out about five years ago, but. I can't remember who I went up there with to see the Fabulous Thunderbirds at this old biker bar, the Golden Inn, which later burned down. But I had a great time, man. Got drunk in the car, maybe smoked a little weed, went in there with my shiny suit and just danced until I sweat my ass off for like an hour and a half, man. And they just rocked the place. And it was just life changing or at least month changing, maybe half a year changing but uh, since then i've always i've always loved jimmy vaughn i love the way he plays guitar he had a big influence on how i handle a guitar and i imagine most of you never heard of him but jimmy he'll be playing in new york next week december 1st and 2nd at jazz at lincoln center the most recent album of the jimmy vaughn trio with mike flanagan is called live at sea boys i saw that band with jimmy vivino in austin the last time i was there and that's when i first met jimmy and i was uh, A little fucking starstruck. Jimmy Vaughn's the guy that makes me starstruck. So this is me and Jimmy Vaughn talking. (music) I live the dream in the garage, Jimmy. Yeah. Yeah. It's like many people. But uh, but when I play blues, when I want to play with records, I play to your first two records. I play to those fabulous Thunderbirds right Oh, records. cool. Those thank are the you. ones I play to because that your guitar sound and your guitar playing, was it, to me, was the best to, to learn from and to play to. Well, that, thank you. That's just the truth of it. That's where I come from. <laughs> and I saw you in Albuquerque, New Mexico at the Golden Inn. There's an old yeah. biker's bar up behind the Sandia Mountains. Yeah, I, I was in high school. I put on my sharkskin suit, and I went and saw you. That must have been like what seventy eight. Well, you know,
3: the, the whole thing is a dream. Right now? No, it, it it was from the beginning. So you know, like like you're a kid, and uh, you don't like what things, the way things are going necessarily, or yeah, something ain't right, and you get this idea. Gee, I wonder if I could be a guitar player, because you heard a BB King record or yeah. something, or you heard uh, yeah. whatever it is you know that yeah. that flipped your switch right. And, and you, you, you just do it because, first of all, you can, you find out you can do it. Right. A little bit. And then, you know, then your, your dreams take over and you just go for it. And then you just sort of end up playing with Clapton, in Madison Square Garden. Well, yeah, but I think, I mean, everybody with a guitar, that's the American dream, isn't it? It's It's one of them. One of them for sure. Yeah. But I remember when I first started playing guitar, I I had a, the guy at school in junior high, he told me, he said, look, he said, if you want a girlfriend, if you want the girls, you're going to have to play football. There's no other way. And I was like, really? And he said, well, you have to come down there on Thursday and, and you have to go out for football. And I'm thinking, I didn't say anything. I was thinking, man, I'm, I'm the worst football player in the whole school, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That didn't make any difference. So I went down there, and I said, I don't even know what to do. He said, well, you look like, you look like you're a left halfback. Get over there in that crowd over there. Yeah. So they, they said, okay, Jimmy Vaughn. I r- ran out there, and I mysteriously caught this pass. Yeah. It, was a, it was an accident. Yeah, And they all piled on me, and I brought my collarbone. That was it. So they sent me home, was home for three months. My dad came home from work and said, I don't know what we're going to do with you. He said, here, he gave me this guitar that he had gotten from a friend of his, had three strings on it. So I've been playing ever since. (laughs) Since since he had those three strings? (laughs) Yeah. and And I'll show you, if you hand me that damn guitar, I'll show you what I did.
0: I don't know what, that might be in an open tuning, I don't know, check That's okay. it out. okay, yeah, it, it doesn't matter, yeah.
3: because I only had three strings yeah. and I didn't know what to do, but I had a... I didn't know how to do it, so I went. That was what I learned the first day. That's all you need. And I'm still doing that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was so fucking excited when I learned how to do that. <laughs> it was backwards, but I did it anyway.
0: But you know that that thing, that thing, and then you, and when you learn how to change to the A. Oh man.
3: <laughs> <laughs> it's so fucking exciting. So I've still got that bug. Yeah. That's what drives me. I'm excited. I'm excited thinking about it. <laughs>
0: Because I learned chords first, but when someone told, taught me, I think it was honky-tonk, really, I was like, oh, my God. And then it just ended there for me. That was... that was. <laughs> well, I still play that. Yeah. I still play it all night. Yeah. You know? I love it. It's pretty satisfying, right? It's fabulous. When was... What was the guy... Like, when you were a kid, I mean, if that's the way it happened, who, what was the first blues song? What was the first
3: thing that just you know, entered your head and didn't, and didn't well, there let was, go? There was a guy... Uh, there was a radio station called WRR in Dallas that came on at at ten o'clock at night. I believe it was played till midnight. Yeah, and they would play Jimmy Reed. Yeah, lots of Jimmy Reed. Yeah, yeah, and they would play, Lightning Hopkins and three or four guys. Yeah, so I would I had a transistor radio, and you're supposed to go to bed at ten. You know, you can lay in the bed with the light out and click that. Transistor radio on, and you can just hear it if you put it to your right stick
0: it right up. And it didn't
3: do anything to your head like nowadays, (laughs) yeah, it doesn't blast your ears out. Well, you know, nowadays it's oh, yeah, it might be the the whatever the satellite, the beam, sure, yeah, satellites making babies in your brain, right? (laughs) Yeah, so anyway, that was it. And then after at midnight, I would flip over to uh XCRF, which was uh Wolfman Jack, yeah. And then I learned after that I could get Nashville.
0: Oh, you could get all the way out there?
3: Because they were the big stations, you know.
0: From Dallas you could get it? at yeah. Late at night, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I could probably. And that
3: was the horse man and, and all that stuff.
0: Like, uh, what, just uh, country stuff?
3: No. No, was no it was it? blues. It really? was a blues From Nashville? Show. Yeah. All,
0: all blues? Yeah. So you were like, what, like a
3: kid? How old? 12, 13. And what's your brother doing? He was eight. Yeah. So, now, so he, now he, he wasn't... He he wasn't there yet, but when I got a record player and started playing albums, he I would, you know, try to play some song, I'd get a record and try to play it, put it down, and say, Don't touch my guitar. Yeah. We had the same room, you know. Right. Then he would pick it up and as soon as I left and, and <laughs> play the same thing. So he, he basically started a little bit after I did, you know. Yeah. And did you take lessons? No. You never did? No, I, I tried to take lessons one time. My dad said, son, if you want to get good on that, you're going to have to learn your majors and your minors. Yeah. So I went down to on Jefferson in Oak Cliff uh, to Boyd's Guitar School. Yeah. And uh, I went down there the first lesson. He gave me a couple of things, you know, notes and stuff. He said, I'm not going to tell you what this song is. I want you to learn the notes. Yeah. So, I'll see you next week. Yeah. So, I came back. After a couple of weeks, I, I finally figured out that it was, the melody was Mary Had a Little Lamb. Dun, yeah. dun, 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 dun. So, I yeah. played that and he goes, you're not reading that. And I said, well, look, what do you want me to do? You want me to read or play? I can't do both. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I, he fired me after a couple of <laughs> As a lessons, student, few you lessons, see let yeah. you go?
0: <laughs> I'm not going to teach you, kid. <laughs> it's over. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and what? When did you start? Like, uh, what'd you, what you? What was your? What business was your dad in? My dad was an asbestos worker. What they called a pipe coverer. Oh yeah, yeah. That's not not healthy. It's not real healthy. No, no. <laughs> you know they would insulate. He was called an insulator. Oh, okay. They would insulate pipes. Just, on, on buildings, big buildings, oh, and and that was it. Before it was safe. Yeah. And so he
0: did he get sick from yeah, that? He, he did. did.
3: He died from the black lung. Oh, yeah. And asbestosis.
0: Yeah. Oh, boy.
3: But, uh, you know, that's... um, There was a lot of musicians in his local in Dallas. Uh, A lot of rock and roll guys, hillbilly guys, and all kinds of people were there because you could go and make a lot of money on a couple of weeks. Yeah. And then go off on tour or whatever.
0: Yeah, anybody uh, that you knew? Uh, Record Well, there was a
3: guy named Leonard... I don't know his last name, but his name is Leonard, and he had a guitar. He had a big Gibson, yeah. like an L5 or something, with two pickups and his name in the neck. And Pearl. Yeah. Leonard. And he he told me, I he came over to my house. My parents would play dominoes on the weekends. Yeah. So he came over there with another guy, and they played in the living room while they were playing dominoes. And I said, uh, I like i like that blue stuff and he goes you mean like this so he he started playing jimmy reed he showed me how to play jimmy reed chuck berry and john lee hooker in one night oh you need to show me how it went yeah right
0: sure the what the chords were and he had actually
3: played with chuck berry like backed him up you know
0: oh yeah a lot of people did i think yeah right chuck would come into town and go who's gonna do it right yeah so he taught you, those are three pretty
3: essential things, man. It's unbelievable. I mean, that <laughs> God sent that guy there, you know, for me. <laughs> you, need, you need that guy. He was great. And uh, How old were you when that happened? I was about 12, 13. I mean, I just started trying to play. So were there other people that taught you stuff? My I mean, uncles on both sides of my family. My uncle on my mom's side played guitar. They played in hillbilly bands. And, and on my dad's side, too. He was people. Like Hillbilly Vans? Yeah. Well, you know, like which uh, was just country at the time. You sure. know, Mer- Merle Travis, you know, they like Merle Travis and um, Hank Williams and, you yeah, know, sure. all that stuff. Yeah. And so, but, you know, when I first started playing, they, I didn't know that there was a difference between, it was just cool music, I right. thought. Sure. I didn't know. You know, I heard uh, blues on the radio, and you know BB King and and all that stuff. Jimmy yeah. Reed and yeah. Chuck Berry. I had you know I had Chuck Berry records, and then I met this harmonica player who was about fifteen years older than me. He was a grown up, and he yeah. he um, he gave me a, a, a little Walter album. Oh yeah, the, yeah, the best of Little Walter. Sure, album. yeah. And then he, and then I found you know muddy waters and all that stuff. Yeah, so,
0: the chess box.
3: Yeah, but it wasn't a
0: box. It, it was, was just the, the best. it. was of, a real album. Yeah, yeah, of of, of Little Walter with Juke on it. Yes. Yeah, man, that thing that, that's a life changer. And so, but did you play harp at all?
3: Well, no. I mean, I tried, but uh, but but you know, I never could play. And then I got, uh, I met Kim Wilson, so I didn't really.
0: That guy is sort of a, a savant.
3: He's a, he's, he's a,
0: a great harmonica Yeah, like he's just a gifted player. Yeah, so but,
3: I, you know. Where'd I, you meet I him? stuck to the guitar. How old were you when you met him? Um, well, I guess it was in the 70s, so I was probably 19 or 20, something like that. And he was
0: just around?
3: No, he came down. He came to Austin, and I was already playing yeah. uh, down there, and he came to Austin, and... Came to this place where I was playing and, and said, I want to sit in. And we said, okay. And he he got up and you know, he did the big Walter Horton, George Smith thing, you know, yeah. and tore it up. And so, yeah. that was about two weeks later, we're like, well, we need to get a band. I think we'll call it the Fabulous Thunderbirds. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he was like, yeah. He's in. <laughs> so, you know, that's how we got started, basically. You know. But you grew up in Dallas, mostly? Yeah. But, I mean, I moved to Austin... When I was eighteen, so yeah, yeah that was in nineteen sixty nine. Oh wow, so, permanently. I had been playing there. I used to play in when I was fifteen. I got in this band that was a a band that played fraternity parties, and they made a lot of money playing fraternity parties. Top forty stuff. Yeah, anything. Beatles, yeah. whatever. Yeah, and uh, they were all twenty one, and I was fifteen. Yeah, and I got to stay out all weekend. You know. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, and. Uh, so I was making uh, $300 a week.
0: That's pretty good for 68. In the 60s. Yeah.
3: In the mid, mid to late 60s for a 15-year-old kid? Yeah.
0: yeah. Better than football. whole lot better.
3: <laughs> and there was girls there. I know. Yeah. You get more girls with a guitar than a football. Well, I don't know about that, but oh, it's a lot easier. I do. Unless you like a unless you're the the quarterback. But see, the thing was, I didn't know how to play football. Right. I was terrible. I was the worst football player <laughs> know, in the world. I know. The guitar worked out better. So
0: you're playing you're doing $300 a week. You're 15 years old. Did you did you just like quit
3: school or did you stay in? I just or? ran off.
0: Yeah, that was it. Yeah. Yeah, to Austin.
3: Well, I I went to Dallas first. I went downtown and I had gigs down there we had we played a place called the cellar yeah for a while and then with uh, the
0: fraternity band
3: no that was a different band i was in a band called the chessmen yeah who i was telling you the guys were 21 yeah yeah and uh we got a gig we opened for uh hendrix you did when this was when hendrix came out his first like his first tour of the states (laughs) yeah so we played at smu uh, in Dallas, other Southern Methodist University auditorium For, in man. Dallas. Was
0: was was he popular at that point? Yeah, he was big. This is well, a big, he yeah. was.
3: You know, he was. It was a a big buzz. I mean, he filled up the yeah two thousand seats. I don't know how many. Yeah, you know, was, it was a small. Uh, auditorium was that the same tour that,
0: that that billy opened for him with his probably that, with that first band of his moving sidewalk
3: moving sidewalk i'm sure yeah. i'm sure it was right so what What was your experience with jimmy he nice guy he was real nice but i just remember you know when they came out and i uh, just remember his his the licks he did when he came out to see if his guitar was working when he first put it on yeah he just went Little, 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 boom. Yeah, and it was like, but it was like five times that fast, right? Yeah, you know, I can't even do it that fast, right? But uh, you thought he was fabulous. I got some work to do. Well, I already <laughs> knew that, but but uh, yeah, he was Jimi Hendrix and I wasn't, you know what I mean? Yeah, but most of those wicks were blues wicks, yeah. I mean, he was he was he was fantastic, yeah. He was I always thought of Hendrix as uh. Uh, you know, he was like um, Muddy Waters' stepson who had just got back from his tour of Mars. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, that makes sense. When you when watching
0: like somebody like Hendrix at that time, I can't imagine like because you play pretty straight in. You just go right into the amp for the most part, right? Yeah, like it's just like the like the the, the people then. He just like what he had one or two pedals and then just went right into the amp. Just turned that thing out, right? It was yeah. kind of pure. It seemed more pure. back then. Well, they didn't the have all that. That's stuff. That's right. Uh,
3: you and know, it sounds you, better, you, right? If you were in the studio, you you could have echo and right and uh, things. But basically, he had the he had the Univibe and he and he had a fuzz face, I think, something like that. And so he could the amps already all the way up. Yeah, and then the fuzz face will give you a little more. Uh, i guess he was using it for the sustain and all that
0: yeah
3: it was just everything all the way up yeah right so he could do the space travel absolutely (laughs) yeah but i mean you know he was he did you know the first time i found the first hendrix record there used to be a tv show in dallas when i was a kid i come off from school it was called something else and it had cheerleaders dancing and they would play records. It was one of those kind of deals. After school record mm-hmm. party dance show. Yeah. And I went over there and would go through the, the bin in the back, the trash bin, and they have other records they didn't like in there. And I found Purple Haze, the 45. Yeah. Foxy, I think, uh I forget what's on the other side. Maybe Foxy, whatever it was. Yeah. And I brought it home and played it because I'd read a, I had seen his name in a little blurb somewhere. Yeah. And so that was the way I that was it found Hendrix in the, yeah. in
0: the garbage. In the garbage, it, they had been put out. Yeah, they decided that wasn't the kind of music that they were going to play for their people. And you were and you were a teenager still. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, it was so exciting. You know. Well, what is it about Texas, man? Because like you know, I listened to you guys on those first two Fabulous Thunderbirds records. You know, that's a that those are real Texan records. Yeah. And those are those, that sound is very specific. And at that time, when I first heard, I'm like, "What the fuck is?" No one was playing blues like that. You, you know, it was a, it was, it, it, it almost. I think it almost happened at the same time as punk rock somewhere
3: in that. Yeah, yeah. Area. They called us. Uh, uh, what what they call us? Uh, blue punk or something uh-huh. like that. They trying to think of what to do with trying us. to market you.
0: Yeah, and it all comes from a certain number of people that are specifically Texas.
3: Well, you know, it came from everywhere, really. But, but, but in Texas, like T-Bone Walker's from Texas. Yeah, he was the first guy to play the electric guitar on the blues. He's the guy. He's the guy. <laughs> He's so he the, came. From, he comes from Texas. Yeah. He goes but everybody had to go to L. A. to get a record. Uh, not everybody, but there was guys in Houston and sure. guys in Dallas. But back in the day, are we talking how far back before you? Thirties, right? Okay, thirty five. Yeah. I think t-bond made his first electric guitar record all the all the licks are on those records every lick that's before world war ii it's crazy so if they were all think how heavy that is it's, they and were, then right next to him was gate mouth brown who was there's pictures of them playing together so uh t Bone goes to la gets gigs records yeah uh gate mouth goes and takes when t-bone goes on tour gate mouth gets his gig yeah at the whatever the place was you know out here yes in, right yeah. here yeah. yeah
0: yeah yeah and that's where it spreads the texas sound
3: and then but some of them you know go uh it's going on in houston and then the mississippi guys go to chicago and right you know how it is you 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 find t-bone walker you find chuck berry somebody and then you read the back of the album and it says i like you know T-Bone Walker and T-Bone says I like Charlie Christian so you go get Charlie Christian Charlie Christian leads you over here you hear Jimmy Reed oh. da 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 you go over here you go over there you just it's on a reverse search yeah sure of, yeah it's a rabbit hole just so I connect the dots and so you know I'm still finding guys that I didn't know about really yeah it, it's 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 impossible it's, it'll never end well so uh, exciting they're, they're on record though you yeah. find them on, yeah, yeah, and then there's now there's young guys coming up that are, that are gonna, it's gonna be fine. Let me tell you, the blues are gonna be fine. Yeah, yeah. Have you seen Gary Clark?
0: Yeah, yeah, I've seen him. You seen him in person? I've seen him. I saw him open for the Stones in San Diego. And that other guy, di- the, the 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 guy who plays with him, the guy in the poncho. Yeah, what's his Zapata. name? Zapata. Zapata. He can play too. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I think we're gonna be all right. Well, let me let me ask you about that. That when you were when you were coming up in Austin, when you kind of settled down after you opened for Hendrix, you were you were that was in Dallas, right? Yeah. With, with the first band, but once you get to Austin and you're 18 years old, there's a scene there, right? Already in the 60s.
3: No, there was only Bill Campbell and uh, who's that guy? He was a, he played similar to uh, Freddie King. Uh oh. He was uh, like that. He played great. And then there was... Uh, did you see Freddie King? Yeah, many, many, many times. Is I played catching? with Freddie King. Yes. You did? Yeah.
0: Wow, man. That's heavy. He was
3: serious. Yeah? Yeah. Like, What do you mean? Well, I mean, he was just like Albert King. He was big yeah. and, and imposing and cool and yeah. just and loud and just badass
0: is it interesting you listen to those earlier records just how like fluid he was and then later he just lay into
3: like just riffs that ran deeper somehow i i never could understand how do these guys figure out what they're gonna play because when you have their when you're a kid and you have their album yeah you you hear the beginning and all the stuff in the middle how do they know how to solo and how do they know what they're gonna play yeah you know
0: yeah you mean in in the actual song? Yeah. Where, where, how do they land that thing? Right. Yeah. I don't. I haven't figured it out. That's why I stay in the garage. That's
3: <laughs> well. So I imagined myself one time, if I was in the room with all my favorite guys: Albert King, yeah. Buddy Guy, B.B. King, Freddie King, and they all played, and we did a roundy roundy, and it got to me. What was I going to do? <laughs> I'd be pretty much screwed. That's, so that's what you would think. That's where the, it starts off a pretty good fantasy. And then all of a sudden the pressure's on. Well, then you realize, yeah, what the, <laughs> I'm not as good as I thought I was. Yeah. This, yeah. Uh, these guys. <laughs> so, I mean, that's, well, then you have to ask yourself, what do I do? Yeah. You know, you can, you take from all these guys. Yeah. And you learn from them and you emulate them. Yeah. But when it gets your turn, what are you going to do? Because you, you had- can't do what they did. That's right, exactly. You have, right. To, you have to have your own voice.
0: Yeah.
3: And There's so a couple I, that, guys
0: that could use that information. And that's,
3: <laughs> that's what I've you know really worked on. Sure. Not that I don't you were conscious of it. Yeah, you were
0: conscious of it and like I, I you know I've listened to these guys, I know how to play like these guys, but it, to, in order to find my own groove, my own thing, you got to let it happen. I mean you can't You have to ask fight. yourself
3: what do I do? Yeah.
0: You know. And what'd you come up with? I mean I well, I hear it on the record. Well, I mean
3: it it your own personality will come out uh, right. eventually yeah. if you keep playing. <laughs> That's it. I think. I think you're right. Yeah. And it does. But I'm still trying to learn and and it still changes and uh you know 5 years ago I probably didn't play what I play now exactly. And what how do you, how do you feel that your playing's evolved? Well, I, I, it just changes. Yeah, uh, you, you know, you got to play what you want to hear.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the idea. Yeah.
3: So. It it just sort of changes. You don't play the same thing over and over exactly.
0: So now, when you get up to Austin, you know you're starting to play up there, and I imagine your Stevie's still at home in Dallas.
3: Yeah, he. Well, when when I ran away from home, uh, my. Mother and dad sort of clamped down on uh, Stevie and said, you're not going to do what he did. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You're going to do your schoolwork and you're going to, we're going to watch you. Yeah. So don't think about it. Right. And which just made him try harder.
0: On the guitar. On the guitar. Yeah.
3: So, (laughs) and so he came up, when he got out of high school, he came to Austin.
0: Yeah. And you knew he was just down there doing it. Yeah. Just down there. Yeah. Yeah. Working it out. Oh, yeah. Did you guys get along pretty well? Yeah. Yeah. So he came up after high school. So now the Vaughn brothers are in Austin. That sounds like trouble to me. That must have been trouble. Well, he
3: he did pretty good right away. Um, started playing around. He got a band and and started playing gigs and. Uh,
0: the Double Trouble band, or was it and a different? It was brand?
3: Triple Threat? And it was all he had. Several different versions. You yeah, know? yeah. You Always know, pe- a three-piece. People or come and, piece? no people come and go. Yeah, and uh, you know, it's. It's it's not as much uh, you don't always get what you want like you you, you yeah. don't always you can't have who you want all the time sure. so you yeah. or or they won't play what you want or they want to do something else or yeah. you know what I mean it's it it evolves and changes yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. you know so
0: after the you know the first couple of thunderbirds records like what what was your relationship those were on Tacoma right the first two and then you you switch labels you got you well, went to bigger? Tacoma
3: you know they leased it to Chrysalis. Yeah. And then, you know.
0: Right. Was there pressure to change the sound?
3: Um, uh, Not really, because we started out so crazy. They didn't really know what to do. They wanted us, you know, like they had some ideas. Hey, man, we could be Blue Wave. We're like, nah, it doesn't sound right. Yeah. Oh, know? so
0: they were trying to wedge you in. <laughs>
3: well, they wanted to figure out how to market us, I guess. Yeah. And uh, you know, all we wanted to do was kind of play Jimmy Reed or Little Walter songs. Yeah, yeah. And they, you know, it it took a while to get going. Kim, Kim wrote a lot of songs, and you know, we we would come up with stuff. So that was that was helpful. And then and then Dave uh,
0: Edmonds produced that. What was that third record
3: or the fourth record? And then we we uh, went and toured England. Yeah. Uh, Rockpile hired us to open their tour. Of England, yeah, and uh, that's when we met Dave and uh, uh, Nick Lowe. Nick Lowe produced his first, yeah, and he was great. That was that was one of our best records. Uh, Which record was that? Uh, I'm in the mood to tear it up. I don't know the name oh, of yeah, yeah. it. T Bird Rhythm. T Bird Rhythm T-bird. was the name of no, 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 no. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so you
0: like working with him? Oh
3: yeah, he was he was
0: great. He's a we good had, guy. I talked to that guy.
3: We had a great time yeah. with him. Didn't and they then, cover,
0: they did uh, You Ain't nothing But Fine, 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 too. Yeah. That's your song, isn't it?
3: Well, no, I was Rockin' Sydney. Rocking Sydney, right. We worked with Nick, and then we went on and did, it was a few years later that we worked with Dave.
0: Yeah. And then, uh, it, and that it, that was Tough Enough. Right. And do, do, did you have, you had some hits, kind
3: of, right? Tough there. Enough was our hit. Yeah. yeah. Tough Enough, yeah. Ain't that tough enough? Uh, yeah. <laughs>
0: and then what happened then you did another record or did, like well we did
3: any... uh i think we did 10 albums all together thunderbirds something yeah. like that and it's still kind of going along without you is it uh, yeah kim they're still going yeah and well, what happened was um this is my version yeah um
0: against kim's version
3: you mean well i don't know what kim's version is yeah but what happened was is, uh, the record company, Epic Records after Tough Enough came to me and said, we want, you, Stevie was hitting really hard. Yeah. And they said, we want you to do a Vaughn Brothers record. Yeah. And I was like, okay. Because we, my dad had talked about it since when I was a little kid. He would say, you know, somebody would come over the house and say, you boys, go get your guitar. Stevie had a toy guitar. Yeah. Go get your guitars and play a tune for so-and-so. Yeah. And then we would play a song, or I would play a song, and Stevie would, yeah, pretend to play, yeah, at first. And then the the person, the the guest would go, "Well, you guys are pretty good. Maybe you can make a record someday." Yeah, you know. So that sure. seed was planted. Yeah, uh, from and
0: twelve years old. The two of you playing together. Right. Yeah.
3: So you know, Tony Martell from Epic Records said, "We need to make a record on you guys," and they all wanted it. And when they want something, it means you you know it's a good thing when you they can, want it. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's again. It's get better some than. Money. When,
3: it's a lot better when they don't want it. Yeah. When they don't want it, you, there's no money, and they you have to talk them into it, and they don't want to do it.
0: No, it's better than. It's better
3: when more than one people want it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so I I just I wanted to do it, and Stevie wanted to do it. Stevie had just had a won a Grammy from uh, I think from his in step record.
0: Oh yeah yeah. The th- yeah, yeah, Instead. the third record. I got it. Yeah, it? yeah. Up on the tight wire was it that yeah, one? Was yeah. that the one
3: on there? Yeah,
0: yeah, the, yeah. The sober record.
3: So anyway, he was kind of hitting it pretty hard, and uh, everything was going along pretty good for him. And then the record company started saying, "Hey, Tony Martell hey, we want Jimmy and Stevie to make a record together.'" And he he pushed it. It was really Tony Martell, mm-hmm. and uh, and we said okay, and then it became fun, and we did it. Was it and, fun
0: playing with him? Oh, it was fabulous. Do you guys? Did you guys have a, a sort of uh, you know sixth sense about how each other worked? Had you been playing together long enough?
3: Oh yeah, we could. It was it was telepathy. <laughs> it's
0: a good uh, record. I loved hearing that record. It was sad that it came out after he passed, but it was well. Great.
3: You know, we we had no idea what was going to happen. Of you know? course, of not. course not. Yeah. and so uh, we thought, well, we'll be able to tour, and uh, this will be fun. Mm. And the record company was excited about the record, too, from all along. I remember we went and played it for them. They came over in New York. We were at uh, at, uh, Hit Factory or wherever it was we were recording, and some of the guys came over from the label, the Big Shots, and we played them a couple of the tunes, and they were just like, well, that's a hit, and that's a hit. And we were like, "Yeah." (laughs) <laughs> you know, I mean, it was like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then,
0: uh, what was on that record? Was it mostly original shit?
3: Yeah, yeah.
0: You guys wrote it together.
3: Yes. Yeah. And uh, we did the white boot. There was a couple of songs we didn't write, but most of them we did.
0: Uh-huh. And then, uh huh. And then, and then, and then they like when you were like right after you
3: finished it. And then we finished it. And then uh, Stevie had a gig in uh, Wisconsin with uh, Eric Clapton and all these people were going to be there and he called me and he said you got to come everybody's going to be here buddy guys come in and everybody's coming and that's when it happened so and that was a month and the record was already scheduled and uh we uh, you know the first single was going to be Good Texan yeah and and we got together with the record company said so we can't put out Good Texan it's too it's silly under these circumstances, it's not gonna.
0: After he passed you, mean? yeah, yeah,
3: because it was all you know, it was a shock and it's tragic and Def- it's devastating. Just you know all that yeah. you know, so you don't want to put out a comedy record, right? Uh, right. It didn't feel right, so so they put out TikTok, which was kind of times ticking. You know, it was more more heavy. Yeah,
0: yeah. How that, and then it did all right, though, right?
3: Yeah, the record ended up selling really good, but it wouldn't. I think it would have sold better if had I, that not happened.
0: Everything would have been better.
3: Absolutely.
0: Had that not happened,
3: but I mean, it was more of a. It was such a shock. Yeah. The whole thing. You yeah,
0: know? and he just gotten it together, right? You know, he was like just, sober. He and, just
3: got sober. Yeah. And, uh, and I only i i had three months.
0: Oh, you just had three months when he got yeah. yeah. He got. And sober. I thought
3: you know what I thought. I don't know if I can talk about this on the radio, but sure I can. said, I said, well, I got three months. I said if I went out and really tied one on, nobody would blame me. <laughs> and then right after that, and I thought, nope. uh my mother, and then Stevie will come back and kill me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: But you know, what's funny. Is what they say is that, like you know, like that, the disease was looking for a reason. Was looking yeah. for a reason.
3: <laughs>
0: oh man! Well, I'm glad you didn't. I'm glad I didn't too. It might. So you guys were both out there at the same time, just watching each other, you know, well, tear it down.
3: He, he got sober first. Yeah, well, he broke down a couple of times and went to hospital, and uh, for the coke.
0: Right? Or just yeah, yeah. drinking and yeah. whatever. Yeah.
3: And so he was in the hospital in London. So I called Eric and said, Hey, my brother's down the street at so and so. He went over and visited him.
0: Eric yeah, Clapton did, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's he planted the seed.
3: <laughs> that's what did it. Yeah. And then uh then Stevie got so I went to treatment, got sober and then um you know, he had a or three years more than me
0: uh-huh.
3: and i we would be on tour and he would be all sober and they would be in their room and they yeah. would have cokes and yeah iced tea <laughs> yeah. and i'd be standing across the hall with my screwdriver that was about this tall <laughs> yeah yeah and i would be like would you like one come on over <laughs> oh you're like the devil oh, over there yeah. i was yeah still having a good but time. i was at that point where i couldn't Imagine life with it or without it. You yeah. know what I
0: mean. Waking up shaking and shit. Yeah, yeah.
3: It's that's that's that. And everybody when I quit when yeah. I quit drinking, everybody was like, "Man, we are so glad." Nobody said, "Come on, man, start drinking again." <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> yeah, you were you were not the life of the party. No, no. So what's your set list like when you do a when you're opening for Clapton? What do you what do you run through? Um, you change it up.
3: Yeah, yeah. We we pretty much just we, we get out there and play blues, and yeah. we do we do a couple of um, things off of you know each record. Yeah, yeah. But not with any. It's not like we have a radio hit now that everybody wants to hear exactly. Sure. So, uh, you know, we just go out there and have a good time, really. Yeah, yeah.
0: You playing some of the original stuff or mostly covers? What are you doing? Mm-hmm.
3: Mostly covers, but but yes, some original. Yeah, are you putting out a record? I got a, a organ trio record coming out with Mike Flanagan. Yeah, on the B three, and George Ray's on the drums. Did you self release it? No, it's on Proper okay. from from England.
0: Oh, cool. They're going to do vinyl. Yes. Great. Then I'll I'll take it. I'll take one of those vinyls. And,
3: and it's on, uh, you know, it's on all those digital things too. Man. You you want to try and play a song? Sure. All right. Well, I mean, you're going to get to jam on this too. <laughs> okay. It's just got some lyrics. All right, um, Let's go, go for it. it. Let's do a roll, roll, roll. How about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. You go ahead. B flat.
0: B e flat or B flat. B flat. Okay.
3: This is Guitar Junior. We break your touch, We're gonna cheer up the living, gonna wake up the dead Midnight girl, we're gonna paint this town red We're gonna roll, we're gonna roll All night long we gonna pull back the rug We're gonna kick up the floor Midnight girl, we're gonna boogie some more We're gonna roll we gonna roll Let's roll, baby. That was a tune by uh, Guitar Junior from Louisiana, uh, who, who we all know now as Lonnie Brooks.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, thanks for hanging out, man. I that really was had a good great. time. Thank you. I loved it. Thanks, man. There you go. There you go. Me and Jimmy Vaughn. I think we're okay with music. So just please be careful this weekend. Try to be Kind to yourself, kind to other people. Reflect on what uh, what you what you can do better, and how you can uh, be there for others. All right, and if you, you you can fight a little, you can fight a little. Happy Thanksgiving, Boomer lives.